Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we go in-depth into the stories shaping the world's most exciting region. My name is Andrew People. Well, it's been a worrying and traumatic Lunar New Year holiday in China this year, with the rapid spread of a new coronavirus that seems to have stemmed from the city of Wuhan. To give us more perspective on what is happening, we're joined today by Professor Sean Griffiths, whose distinguished career in medicine and public health included co-chairing Hong Kong's inquiry into the SARS epidemic in 2003. She is now an emeritus professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Professor Griffiths, thank you so much for joining us today. What do we know about how this virus emerged and how long could it take to identify exactly how this started? Well, we believe the virus started in Wuhan wet market, uh, which is where live animals and uh, actually live fish, it was the fish market, uh, are sold. And it's very similar to where SARS started, which was in the wet market in Guangzhou. Now, it's thought that the infection, the coronavirus, has jumped from bats through civet cats in the case of SARS, and the, there has been mention of snakes in, in this instance. But the what the important thing is that it's a coronavirus which has jumped and then caused disease in humans. And I think it's the jump from animal to man that always worries us because that's a new infection. And then we don't understand how that infection is going to play out. So we unfortunately will only know by observation. And that's always the danger with one of these epidemics. And typically, how long does that process take, that process of observing and investigating the causes of a virus like this? Well, it, it, it does depend on both the virus and the reaction to the virus. And so, for example, in SARS, it took a while to identify the virus. It took a while to identify there was an epidemic and there was a problem. If you remember, the Chinese government at that time were not very free with the information. And then once it was understood that it was spread by droplet, by the same mechanism as coughs and colds, then you're able to take the precautionary measures that are necessary. So there's a series of precautionary measures that come into play. So in Wuhan, for example, the travel ban and all the other measures that are being taken are part of stopping the spread, the containment. And most cases in the world can link to somebody from Wuhan at the present time. Yeah. So we know that this case, uh, Wuhan, is the epicenter. We know that it's spread person to person now. Uh, in the very first days, it was thought to spread, you know, just from the wet market. People didn't know whether it went from person to person. It's now known that it spreads person to person. Uh, and so the idea is to reduce contact as much as possible. Why is it it's proving so dangerous? It seems, from what I've read, it's causing people to get pneumonia. And then it's very difficult for doctors to treat that form of pneumonia that they're getting. Can you explain a little bit about why that's the case, why it's so difficult to treat? Yes. Well, it's, it's very similar to SARS in the case that uh, what, what it does is that in some people, the respiratory symptoms become severe and the patient will get a, a pneumonia and, and it's a virus. So it doesn't respond to antibiotics. Right. And in the first days, the information that we were being given by the Chinese government was that many of the people who had the infection were either elderly or immunocompromised. Yeah. And as you will have heard other commentators saying, every winter we get an excess winter deaths. We get more people dying, especially older people dying during the winter months from the flu virus. Yes. Now, the flu virus is linked to this virus in that it is a coronavirus. So these are similar viruses. So so I think that the anxiety for this virus is it's a new disease. We don't mm. know 
the spread. We don't know who it's going to affect. We don't know how severe it's going to be. And we don't know how, who it's going to be severe in. Not everybody who gets the infection dies. Many people recover. So it's, it's the unknown element of this disease that I think worries everybody. Yes. And it's possible, is it right, that people can be carrying this virus and they don't know about it. That seems to add an extra element of uncertainty what's, to what's going on. There's, there's a little bit of debate at the current time yeah. as to whether or not you're infective when, you're, when you don't have symptoms. What you can definitely do is travel around with, when you're incubating the disease from point A to point B without knowing that you've transmitted the disease to a different place. So with, with this disease, we need to be looking all the time at the science. You know, there's a big scientific response, a global scientific response here, looking at the organism, looking at whether or not it can be uh, infective without any symptoms. There was a report in The Lancet last week, but it was a very small uh, series of cases. That's what be, is being further followed up at the current time. Mm. So it's I keep going back to uncertainty. You know, SARS came into the population in March. There were a few cases in February, started to get into the hospital community, hospital care workers in March. We didn't think it was going to spread to the community. Then we found it had spread to Amoy Gardens. And you'll remember there was a big cluster of cases in Amoy Gardens, the peak of the epidemic. Then all the moves that were taken by the Hong Kong government for isolation, for quarantine, for increased hygiene, for isolation in hospitals. All those strategies came into play. And then the disease basically petered out in the population. And if you look at the epidemic curve, which shows that by June, July, there were very few cases of SARS left in Hong Kong. So if you were in charge now of combating this virus, what would be the top of your list of, of the sort of known unknowns that you would really want to know about now? Well, I, I think I think it is. How virulent is this virus? Peter Peart um, from the London School of Hygiene has suggested that it's not as serious as SARS. Right. Uh, and, and that's done on a numerical assessment. Uh, but we have to see over time, because the other thing about viruses is they mutate. And in, in the case of SARS, it mutated to become less virulent. Mm. So, so I think that's one of the things. But I think that the main thing is also I'd want to see, one of my priorities is to get messages out to the public, because this isn't just something where governments can take action. So, for example, in Wuhan, the travel ban, or Hong Kong, the closing of the border, or not quite the closing of the border, but restrictions at the border. It's also what can individuals do. Right. And personal hygiene is incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah, that, washing you know, hands, washing faces. Sneak into a tissue, throw the tissue away well, don't eat uncooked food. Mm. Uh, just some very basic things. Don't go to mass gatherings, don't 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 go to places where you might pick up the infection. So I mean I think sensible behaviour will do a lot to help control the disease. Because we don't know about the disease, we need to be constantly vigilant and constantly watching it develop. And that means that we need preparedness. We need preparedness in our um, healthcare systems across the world. We need good international communication about numbers of cases, about the science of the virus, etc. So you need a sort of stratified response. There's the global response, there's the country response, there's the health system response, and there's the individual response. And I think all of that together will help to contain the disease, to control it. And we just hope that it will not be as uh, harmful as SARS. And we hope that we can control the infection. Are you surprised that there have been a number of cases reported in other countries? Or is that sort of par for the course in this kind that's, of that's case? That's par for the course, because um, you'll have heard the, the mayor of Wuhan saying that he only brought the ban in late after about 5 million people had actually left Wuhan yeah. for the 
confounding the year. And of course, the Lunar New Year is the big confounding factor here. The Lunar New Year, the big celebration, the yes. migrants is going home, uh, huge numbers of people crossing China, going abroad, etc. So spread to other countries is not unexpected. And most of those cases, I think almost all of those cases, can be traced to contact with somebody from Wuhan. There's a Japanese bus driver who's been confirmed as a case, but he had had Chinese tourists. So it's quite logical how the spread has occurred. It's not suddenly popping up somewhere without being able to contact trace and find out why that's the case. Sure. Now, I want to draw a bit on your experience of SARS and the inquiry you did there uh, 17 years ago now. What in the first instance, when you have an incident like this and you have a country like China that's part of the WHO, what are the demands placed on countries? What do they have to disclose? What do they have to report? What are the, what are the sort of basic requirements from members of the WHO? The requirements have come into place since SARS because yeah. if you remember the story of SARS was that it was in China, yeah. was hidden in China, and it was only when it came over the border to Hong Kong that it became more obvious what was going on and there was a more global response. And so since then, there are international surveillance mechanisms set up. And so the WHO hosts the information system where the cases are reported. So every country is required to report. And we have the same with sort of Zika. We have the same with Ebola. We have the same with other, wherever there, a, a new disease appears to be emerging or an epidemic disease appears to be emerging, everybody will be sending information to a central point so that you can get a global perspective. So you get a global perspective, and WHO has a series of experts, and the series of experts will meet to make decisions on best recommendations for prevention and for treatment, and uh, etc. So I think that SARS taught us we needed information flow, honest information flow, and rapid information flow. From what you've seen so far, how does the Chinese government and the local government, obviously in Wuhan, how does their response compare with the response during SARS? Well, as I say, when SARS first occurred, there was a sort of, it was almost as if it wasn't occurring and, and, and yeah. there wasn't a collection of the data and there wasn't a sharing of the data. And that sort of emerged over time. I think the Chinese government have responded extremely well. I mean, Li Keqiang was in Wuhan, you know, and they've committed to additional support by busing in other nurses and doctors from other places and taking it very seriously. The um, support for the lockdown in Wuhan and, and showing quite a lot of leadership, the support for building of the new hospitals, which can be used as isolation hospitals. So I think the Chinese government is responding pretty well, and particularly much better than it did during SARS. There's been some criticism of the local authority, hasn't there, in the city of Wuhan itself. Yes. And I think yes. the mayor himself has apologised for being slow to share some of what was occurring in Wuhan. Yes. What do you think about that? I mean, do you think that uh, they could have been quicker? Why would have they been slow to respond? I mean, he's saying it himself. So Obviously, they could have been quicker to respond. But I think sometimes when something like this comes out of the blue, people are not necessarily tuned in. I mean, we found in, in SARS that it, you know people were just not thinking that there was going to be an epidemic of a disease that had jumped from animal to man. It just didn't really register yeah. just, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So it could be that. I, I, I'm not a great conspiracy theorist, and I don't know because I'm not in Wuhan and I haven't been speaking to the people there. But I think it's easy to create conspiracy theories I think that, yes, in retrospect, in hindsight, he could have acted more quickly. The question is, would we have thought with that many cases that you would need to lock down Wuhan? It's a matter of judgment and decision, as in many things in these situations. Yeah, there's a sort of balance between causing yeah. panic and yeah. Uh, yeah. 
being exactly. realistic about something. Absolutely. Because, yeah, exactly. Because actually, one of the things that we forget to talk about is the is the impact of having this sort of disease on the population, on their mental health. And during SARS, there was an increased rate in suicide. So I think, you know, we have to be a, a, a little bit sanguine about actually getting the message calm and collected and based on science and on fact. Uh, without ramping it up. How much do you think that changes in social media since 2003 are playing a part this time? When you think that, you know, the the rise of WeChat in particular in China, where people can just send videos and images to each other so quickly, that I suppose the scope, firstly, for disinformation to spread is much higher, but also the scope for sort of criticism of the authorities is also much higher, potentially. Is that, do you think Mm. that's been a factor this time around? Uh, Oh, I'm sure, I'm absolutely sure it has. I think the world has changed hugely in the last 17 years because of the speed of social media communication. And and also social media is just opinion. And so you can get all sorts of things said that may not be true or maybe not be accurate. And so social media is playing a role, which is why, for example, Public Health England would be tweeting uh, as well as putting out official statements because that way information reaches other people. I think there's capacity for misinformation and, and also some of the images can be, you know, can be quite disturbing. I, I personally found the image of um, the fitting patient on the trolley in Wuhan difficult to watch because what you don't actually know is what's the history of that patient and what actually what else is going on with that patient i mean the fact that they were in the corridor was very sad but i do think we have to be a bit more careful about spreading around these sort of images but it also necessitates a, a more direct response doesn't it from government i mean oh, yes, the idea yes. that you could cover up something like this for four months yes, as they did yes, with yes. sars is just exactly. non just unthinkable these days and which is why being on the front foot sharing the information telling everybody what's going on because on you know the access to the internet we can all go on google and we can all look up things straight away so if you've got a different world you have to respond very differently so although we made recommendations during sars we didn't necessarily know how much we could use social media or the internet but the internet is is both good and bad it's great because it speeds up the communication but it can also allow misinformation so it's a balance as usual do you think that levels of trust in government in china are high i mean there's been other public health scares since sars notably the melamine baby milk scandal a few years ago um yes. do you think people though by and large they sort of accept what they're told by their government and and do what they're told in this sort of circumstance i don't really have any deep knowledge of sure. how people are thinking but i would say that the lockdown in wuhan hasn't meant people disobeying it so that really answers itself. I think at times such as SARS or, or this coronavirus, people will listen to experts and will listen to the science and, and will understand why things are happening, even if it means that at Chinese New Year you can't go home to your family. People will understand because they can see that it's for the greater good. And I think that in general in China, that, that message usually gets across. And what have you noted about the capacity of the health service in China to cope with this problem? I mean, it's obviously difficult for any kind of health system to cope with an epidemic of this scale so suddenly. But do you think they have the capacity to treat patients and combat this virus in a timely manner? I think, as you say, any country with the, facing this challenge is going to be stretched because you don't keep that spare capacity in your healthcare system because usually that gets used up by demand for other things. It seems to me that the building of the the hospitals in Wuhan 
for example. And and that's a lesson that was learned from SARS in Beijing, because that, that approach was taken there to rapidly increase capacity. I, I know that there's a lack of protective equipment, uh, masks in short supply, uh, and I know that the healthcare staff are very stretched and that other healthcare staff are being drafted in to help them. So in terms of, you know, do they have the capacity, they are maximizing what they have available. They are putting a huge effort into trying to contain this disease and treat the patients. But what you'll probably find, and I ha- I'm just saying this as a supposition, what you probably find is that you have many people who have some symptoms. It's the time of year you get flu, colds, etc. Many anxious people will be going along to the hospitals as well. And so the hospitals are flooded out with people full of anxiety, full of concern, who may not necessarily have the virus. So it's very, very tricky. One last question, Professor, if you you wouldn't mind. You've obviously had a lot of experience in this area through your career. But also, of course, we've seen things like SARS. You mentioned the Ebola virus a few years ago, and now the new coronavirus in China. How optimistic do you feel that as a sort of almost as a species that we're getting better at dealing with these sorts of things? Or do you see the same kind of problems occurring each time we have a panic like this? Well, that can be answered in two ways. I think we are getting better. I'm absolutely sure that in the UK, Public Health England is well prepared. The NHS may well not be well prepared if we had a huge epidemic because of capacity and Mm. the same issue. This is China. So we're getting better. We may not necessarily be on top of that jump between animal to man, uh, which is what this is another example of. This virus was in animals, and animal reservoir has now become in, um, uh, into humans and can pass between humans. Now, that sort of bit of the chain is obviously one where maybe better hygienic conditions in, in wet markets or you know less selling of live animals or those sorts of things. Those are the sorts of things what I expect will be looked at in retrospect once the epidemic has, has uh, taken its toll, because at the moment, obviously, the key thing is to stop the spread and treat the patients. Mm. And if you want to stop it happening, in the future, what what is it you would do? So I think we are getting better. We have a better understanding. We understand the need to to share science and yeah. information. We need the we need to mobilise industry as well as the academics, as well as the healthcare systems. And that's all happened this time. So we're getting quicker. We're getting more nifty on it, and we all understand the priority it needs to play. So uh, I wouldn't say that I was going to sit here and say to you, it's getting better. It's all going to go away. I don't think it is. I think we're going to need to keep vigilant. We're going to mm. Waiting for the next disease because if you remember when SARS happened, we were wait- we were expecting it to be bird flu, and we were very very nervous in Hong Kong about that. And and actually, since both um, bird flu and SARS, the conditions of selling food in the markets uh, has changed in Hong Kong. That may happen at, at on a broader scale in other parts of Asia. It's just you know how important is that vis-a-vis other things in life will will be uh, a decision for another day. Professor Griffiths, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us at this short notice. Absolutely fascinating stuff and great to have your perspective having been involved with SARS as as well. My parting shot is wash your hands. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. Thank you once again to uh, Rebecca Bailey and Vincent Nee. Thank you to Alex Lestrange who does the music for Asia Matters. As ever, you can contact us at asiamatterspod at gmail.com and also at Twitter at asiamatterspod. Thank you so much for listening. 